Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and guess what? My power panel is already here in the studio, just like I asked them to be here, and here they are for a solid uh, couple hours of guy talk today. So I'm looking forward to that, which means we've got plenty of time for your questions. Text them over, 877-933-2484. My panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish and... Professor and author, Dr. Greg Borgon. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to be here, Bill. Good to be here. Thank you so much. I appreciate uh, your willingness to participate in this lovely time of the week we call Guy Talk. We love it. It's the best time of the week for me. I appreciate you saying that time. You said that off air, and so you really meant it. <laughs> I do. I mean You're not it. just saying it on air. Just... It is powerful because it forces me to really examine God's Word by the wonderful questions people have. Yeah, so true. And it's great. So true. Send your questions over, 877-933-2484. Right before we got started, Greg, you were saying something. I said, oh, you have to repeat that. And you were just talking yeah. about the direction when people get into a slide. They start to get into a slide, and that momentum takes over, doesn't it? Yeah. One of the the um, sad things that happening in our culture today is when sin goes unabated, the shrill voice grows louder. And so... Uh, another way to look at that, there was a book published some time ago by a Yale professor, Why Smart People Do Stupid Things. And in the book, one of the chapters talked about this slippery slope, that when you make a mistake, when you sin, or when you take a position um, you're, you, in, in its anti-biblical uh, position, you start down this slope, and this the momentum overtakes you, and it gets to the point where you can you no longer have the ability to stop and turn around and climb back up through repentance or by confession or by acknowledging you're wrong. You've gotten so far down it, the momentum has overtaken you that you're not going to admit you're wrong no matter what, even though deep in your, inside of you, because we know from Scripture that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, even though you might have that inner turmoil even though your conscience may be seared, it's still alive telling you right from wrong, you still don't have the courage or the strength to stop and to acknowledge that you're wrong. Mm -hmm. One of the breakdowns in the church that I see, and I mentioned this several times, there are 59 one another passages Mm -hmm. in the New Testament, which we rarely preach on and we rarely hold people accountable to. One of the things I've tried to get across to my congregation is this— if we have members that start down that slippery slope or start teachers that might start bringing that stuff in, there is a tendency to be exceptionally gentle, and I believe in that, and gracious and all that kind of stuff. But there reaches a point where we have to start really holding one another accountable and saying, no, that is not what the Word of God says. And the one another passages talk about literally holding one another accountable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a healthy thing. And I try to get across to the people that I serve that, look, church is not here for you just to show up to on Sunday and to give money to. This is the body of Jesus Christ. You are here as a guest, and you are called to be his disciple. And that means 
we adhere to God's word and we put that to work in our life. Yeah, uh, you know, in in uh, Hebrews again, uh, it talks. There's a passage in Hebrews that talks about the importance of understanding that the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us say to note on godliness and worldly passions. And to live upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who set us aside to prepare himself for a people that are eager to do what is good. So within the, the, the confines of that, that single paragraph, you find not only the benefits that accrue to our account as um, when we receive Jesus as Savior, but also our obligations and responsibilities now that we've been adopted into the family, that we're to represent the king, we're no longer of this world. And so consequently, uh, there is a point, as you're saying, Tom, where people reach a line, a limit, that they that there has to be some degree of, of correction. And what the Bible talks about is, is spiritual discipline or church discipline, and you don't hear much of that. It's interesting, and this is a story I think I've told before, but it's so it hit me so hard that in my evangelical Lutheran background, occasionally we have the altar call. We ask people, we always ask people to make a public commitment to Jesus in front of other people. It's never just a private thing or go through a class. There's a point where you have to publicly proclaim he's Lord and Savior. Well, I remember I had a, about 10 people come forward one Sunday. It was really an exciting Sunday, and I, I prayed with them to repent of their sins, to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, and it was all well and good. And then I noticed one of the guys who did that wasn't there the next Sunday. Oh, well, he's probably out of town. Next Sunday, he's not there either. I thought, this doesn't smell right. I'll give him one more Sunday. Third Sunday comes, and he's not there. I finally track him down. I go over to his house, and we sit and talk, and I say, Bill, you know, we, we, you prayed to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Why aren't you coming to church? He said, you never asked me to do that. You asked me to repent of my sins and receive Jesus. I did, but you didn't <laughs> talk to me about being a disciple or whatever that means. So now when I do altar calls uh, among Lutherans or whatever— I not only ask them to repent and to receive Jesus, but to make a lifelong commitment to being his disciple and a disciple maker, because that's our commissioning. Mm -hmm. Absolutely right. Nicely done. Dr. Greg Borgon and Tom Parrish are my guests today for Guy Talk. And let me know what questions you have. Uh, Send them over, 877-933-2484. This next question isn't really fair, because I've had a chance to think about it in advance. So I technically have an answer ready to go, whereas you guys are just getting thrown out of the bus right now. Oh, why not? All right. So here it is. What is your deepest desire? What would you say, Bill, if you were asked that question? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I would... That was good. I like that. I, I mean, I could go first. My, my deepest desire is to be forgiven of my sins. That's my that. deepest desire. I love that. I have no other desire deeper. It's good. Good. For me, it's it's always been for a long time um, is to really know Jesus. Okay. To really, I mean, not know things about him, but to really know him so that his thinking, his voice comes through me. It's not just me anymore. <laughs> Mine's a little more personal. Uh, I want to crash through the gates of heaven, utterly exhausted, having expended everything on the field of engagement for the Lord. Wow. And then to be welcomed by him. And, you know, it's not wanting to put words in his mouth, but here's kind of what I want to hear. Greg, we've been waiting for you. Welcome home. You're a man after my own heart. Mm. 
I mean, that's my deepest desire. Really nice. I love it. I love it. That could be the cover of a book. I can see it right now. Crashing. Yeah. Crashing through the gates of heaven. <laughs> Getting home. Yeah. I love it. When I shared that with my wife, I share it repeatedly, but when I shared it with her, and my wife always brings me down to earth, and she says, yeah, there's going to be two or three angels utterly exhausted, too, and glad you're finally there. <laughs> <laughs> so you have one of those brides as well. Oh, I yes. Yes, I oh, know. yes. Yeah. A truth sayer. <laughs> so in other words, Greg, never slow down, regardless of Absolutely. age and stage of well, life. Well, I mean, Craig Rochelle... Uh, once said, if you're not dead, you're not done. No, that's so true. And so, I mean, uh, whatever energy we have, whatever faculties we still possess, it should be laid at the altar as an offering and to do everything we can to facilitate God's redemptive purposes in a fallen world from whatever venue, whatever perspective, not my perspective, but whatever direction God has called us to fulfill uh, his great commission, we ought to be doing it right till the last minute. There's no retirement. That's exactly I mean, there's, right. We're repurposed, not retired. We're repurposed. Mm. So someone asked me, why is your desire to be forgiven? Because when I'm forgiven, I've, I've been made right with God. I've yeah. been, my, my sins have been removed as far as the East is from the West, and my wrongdoings will never be remembered and I will have received the righteousness of Jesus yeah, but through you, confession you, of sin and and. and Placing my yeah. faith and trust in him. But it's helpful to understand there are two types of forgiveness. There's positional forgiveness, that you are given forgiveness, a blanket forgiveness when you receive Jesus Christ as Savior. That's what Lord. I'm talking about. And is putting all the sins behind you. That's what I'm talking and about. And it says that he blots them out. Mm-hmm. But there's also relational forgiveness, which I thought that's what you were referring to. That when we sin, when we miss the mark, when we deviate from the plumb line of God's word... The relationship is broken, even though, um, you know, it's been established at the cross. It needs to be restored. So we confess and ask God's forgiveness to restore our relationship um, that we we had when we were given it at the cross. So, yeah. Yeah, it all, it all fits together. I mean, what you're talking about, what I'm trying to talk about, what Greg is, because you're looking for that forgiveness is no different than me wanting to know Jesus or Great running to the end and crashing through the gates of heaven, because the goal is to be as close to the Lord and his will as we possibly can in this life. And when we sin in this life, even though we have the blanket forgiveness by salvation, it still removes us from being like Jesus. And the goal is in this life, we want to go out of this life fully on fire for him and reaching as many people as we can. Mm-hmm. There's probably a couple of different ways I, I could have answered that. Um so I wanted to have a born from above experience. That was my highest goal. My deepest desire in mm-hmm. life is to know that I know that I know that I've made that decision. I've placed my faith in, in Christ. And so, Jesus has said that to you in his word by faith in him. And I tell people all the time, it's not emotionally how you feel about it. It's what he has declared. Yeah. So follow-up question. Uh, I was asked, why is your desire to be forgiven? Then the follow-up to that is, so is our desire to be desired? And I would say, not me. Well, I have not, I can't offer Jesus anything. You know, I mean, I'm created in his image, but the only thing I can offer him is my obedience and my willingness to bow at his feet. I'm after, I want, I desire him. It's about Mm -hmm. the best way I can put it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when somebody seeks to be desired, it means that they're, looking to 
to provide something to make them desirable. And so I don't think that that, that's what uh, we really need to be looking for because God demonstrated his love before we ever came to be. When he superintended our formation on our mother's womb, Mm -hmm. he knew us before we ever were. He set the number of days we'd walk this earth. And he declared also a unique purpose for our life. So we were on the heart of God before we ever came to be. Uh, so we are loved by God, and I'm just so grateful for that. I wouldn't exist today had I not been on the heart of God before mm-hmm. I ever entered this world. Yeah, my deepest desire is to be rescued, to be redeemed, to be born again. That's, mm-hmm. I, I guess, maybe that's... I think what every Christian needs to understand, and you guys are talking about it here, and I've been doing this for a long time, they need to understand their identity in Jesus Christ and their purpose in Jesus Christ. Yep. When you have identity and purpose... Nothing else can get in the way of that unless we abandon the truth because we're driven to serve him. Yeah. yeah. Nice, nicely said, Tom Parrish. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We have time for your questions. It is God Talk or Guys Who Talk. It's a segment where you ask questions and we do our very best to answer them. My power panel is Dr. Greg Borgon and Pastor Tom Parrish. So 877-933-2484, 877-933-2484. We're not going anywhere. We're going to be here for the rest of the show. We'll be right back. Listen to Faith Radio Live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app in your app store today. All right, so glad to be back with Dr. Greg Borgon and Tom Parrish. We're doing Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Great questions coming in. Thank you so much for sending over questions. Is something you've had on your heart or your mind for a while? Maybe this is a question you've had for 10 years and you, you, and you want another perspective on it. Let us know. We'd love to try to answer whatever you have, 877-933-2484. All right, a couple weeks ago on the show, I w- was talking about narcissism. It wasn't in this segment. Uh, it was on another with another guest. And the question is, um, how how does a, th- a Proverbs 31 woman, what, what, is the, what does a Proverbs 31 woman look like who's married to a narcissist? How do we do that? Mm. Here's a godly woman that wants to live a godly life, and she's married to a narcissist. She's carrying an exceptionally heavy load, and that's where the body of Christ, her friends, really need to gather around her. Because if she does not want to leave that marriage or divorce, if she wants to stay because she's married under a covenant with the Lord, then to live with a narcissist husband means that everything is about him, nothing is about her. She is there to serve his needs when he wants them. And narcissists that I've worked with, even in marriages that I've counseled, are so manipulative, even of their spouse, to get what they want, that the spouse feels like they're not even seen anymore. This woman, the woman, like in Proverbs 31, needs a lot of support from the Christian community to walk with her. The devil wants her to be isolated with her husband, where we need to make sure she's surrounded with other people that are there saying, the Lord still loves you, you still are valuable, you still have a purpose, follow the Lord, do what he wants. 
You know, it, it also speaks, I think, to the issue of being all you can be within your sphere of influence mm-hmm. uh, and taking into consideration the limitations as we're talking about right now with a narcissistic husband. But it's also good to remember that we have responsibility to others, but we cannot take responsibility for others. So regardless of his behavior, we're to be who God's called us to be, a responsibility to them, but not taking responsibility for them. Because the only one you're going to be responsible for is yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't repent for him. No, He's going to have to repent on his own. Uh, so you're absolutely right, and I agree. Mm-hmm. All right, gentlemen, what makes a godly man? Hmm. Dr. Greg Borgon, I'm looking your direction to get things started. Well, first of all, it, it, Tom had mentioned a little bit earlier, it's coming into clarity with a sense of your identity in Christ. Um, I've When I talk to, to men all the time in my ministry, I talk about the fact that they're created for three purposes, a cause to die for, a challenge to embrace, and loved ones to protect. Every man I know wants to be a part of something larger than himself to know his life matters. Every man I know, even though they may whine about it, need to be challenged on a regular basis. And every man I know has been given this gene inside of his soul that compels him to want to protect, to provide safety and security. If they're not married, it's for the uncared for, the unwanted, the marginalized, and so forth. So it starts, I think, with an identity, uh, clarifying what your identity is in Jesus Christ, acknowledging your Creator, because He's the only one that can bring you back to what true humanity was meant to be. Mm-hmm. So it starts there. Then it follows that that God has given you a unique purpose, and that in order to be a godly man— You need to fulfill that purpose that God's called you to fulfill. Ephesians 2.10, he prepared in advance for you a unique purpose. So a godly man not only sees that, but also understands that if he's going to facilitate his unique purpose in a fallen world, he needs to understand that he has a finite amount of emotional, physical, and spiritual energy that needs to be replenished. And so... His biblical purpose is to find the sources, which is the Word of God, a vital and vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, acknowledgement of our Heavenly Father, a reliance upon the empowerment of the Spirit to provide that physical, spiritual, and emotional energy needed to carry out their unique purpose. That's the source of the strength. It says in Scripture, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. We're without excuse. It's simply appropriating what God has already given us. Thank you. You've just written my next week's Father's Day sermon. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Any more comments on that, Tom Parrish? No, what Greg has has nailed it. That's exactly what it is. If men, we're doing a series on Saturday mornings with our men at church. Mm -hmm. We're using a, a video series. And the speaker in the series says that we need to understand that Jesus has made us men unique and we were basically warriors at heart. Yep. He pointed out that Jesus is the greatest warrior who ever lived, but knew how to control that and use it to bring glory to the Father, to bring redemption to people. But he said, don't miss out on the fact the day is coming when he's going to come on that great white horse with that double-edged sword in his mouth and will judge the nations. Mm-hmm. And it's powerful. Yeah, you know, we, we talk a lot in church about Jesus being the Lamb of God, but we can't forget he's also the Lion of Judah. Yes. Yeah, good comment. Dr. Greg Borgon. All right, here's a comment. What do you guys think about this? Let's. This is 
regarding our previous conversation. Let's not trust in our decisions, but in God's word. Peter made a decision for Christ, but later denied knowing Christ three times in a row. Well, here's the bottom line. Once you surrender to Jesus, the devil's going to go to work on you like you've never had him go to work before, trying to convince you you really don't believe, trying to convince you it's really not true, trying to convince you really not forgiven. That's where the Word of God comes in. Most of us don't have the Lord Jesus. It would be nice if he would, but he doesn't, showing up every night and reassuring us, you know, in a vision or a dream. Now, there are people that get that. I know that's true. But the Word of God is there every day and every night, and we need to keep going back through that and see the promises that he's given us in their context so that we can apply them and know we are forgiven, know we have a purpose, know we are unique, and know that we have salvation. You know, one of the passages that I think is is very helpful uh, with regard to that, that question or that comment is what happened to Jesus after fasting in the desert for 40 days. It's called the temptation of Jesus. It's found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Let me just share this, and then I'll, I'll make a couple of comments about it. I think that'll get to the heart of, of the question. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and told him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and uh, on their hands they will uh, bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. With him um, only shall you serve. Now what's interesting to me is there's a verbal communication between the two. It's not a mind meld. They're talking to each other. And how does God combat, God in Christ combat the temptation of the evil one? It's with the written word of God, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, pierced the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and tents of your heart. It's also noteworthy in this passage that the enemy's tactic was to tempt him in three different areas. The same three areas he did with Eve. It, it's, it's the lust of the flesh, food, and, and then it's the pride of life, um, and it's also materialism. Those three areas is where the enemy tries to get to us. Hmm. We'll have to pick that up after the break because there's some good stuff there, Greg Borgon, and then we will continue that. That was uh, excellent. You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, which means we're looking for your questions. Send them over via text, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Show with Bill Arno, Brad 
let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Dr. Greg Borgon and Pastor Tom Parrish are my panel today. And Greg, right before we went to break, you were doing some nice teaching out of Matthew yeah. chapter 4. Yeah, it, it's interesting to me that at the beginning of the Bible, Eve's temptation, in the middle of the Bible with the temptation of Christ, and in 1 John, three areas of, of uh, uh, sinful attack by the enemy are identified, the very same three. And it, it, the first one has to do with physical or pleasure. So here Christ was tempted, he was hungry, and so Satan tried to get to him by um, appealing to that hunger and trying to get him to capitulate, um, but he didn't do that. So it's interesting that at, in the early stages of our life, if we're young in Christ, and between the ages, let's say, of 18 to maybe almost uh, 30 years of age, we're most susceptible to physical temptation, whether it's sexual or otherwise. We can fixate on that, and then it becomes... Um, a black hole for us. I mean, it's it's a stronghold of the enemy. But generally, we're most susceptible to temptation from that direction, and the enemy knows that. When we're establishing our careers, we're accumulating things. And so the tempting area is possessions, just like he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was appealing to uh, our desire for possessions. And so during that stage of our life, as we're building our career, we're accumulating things, and our most susceptible uh, area of, of problems is tempted to acquire more things. Then in the latter stages of our life, after our, our, our career is established, then what the enemy appeals to is our pride, our position, uh, the amount of power that we have. We've accumulated what we're going to accumulate. We have arrived, so to speak. And now we're most susceptible to pride. And so those three areas, he tried it with Eve, he did it with Jesus, and it's referred to again in 1 John. Lust of the flesh, pride of life, and and, uh, lust of the eyes. I would say in 45 years of counseling, and I probably counseled more than I should have as a pastor, but I always had a lot of people want to counseling. Greg, those are three areas that I saw over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Now, there were other things, certainly, but they were all came out of one of those three areas in one form or another. Absolutely. And the battle was getting people to be honest with themselves, be honest with the Lord, and be willing to lay that at his feet because the devil, I don't care how old you are, you can be 90 years old, he's still going to go after you. And he's mm-hmm. still going to try to tempt you in those areas. But especially when you get to be, you know, our age, when you're a little bit older, it's that, what have I accomplished in life? Yeah. What are, what are, who What's am my I? status? Yeah. And the devil's good at that. So his game plan has never changed. It's not going to change. Mm-mm. Christians simply need to be aware of it. Yeah. And immediately when those things begin to crop up within us, that's where we turn to Jesus and start talking to him and look at his word. Yeah. And, it, it, and here's the hope for, for our audience. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and just and will give you a way to escape uh, or give you a way to endure it is what it is. So there's no temptation that you receive that you do not have the capacity through Christ to combat. That's the promise of Scripture. I love that. Yep. All right, gentlemen, here's another question. Uh, What would you say to your 30-year-old self 
on the topic of stress and anxiety. Hmm. What would you say to your 30-year-old self about stress and anxiety? Stress and anxiety is a normal part of the human condition. The issue for a Christian is what are you going to do with that? Are you going to allow it to control your life, or are you going to keep giving it back over to Jesus? I have had people come in with immense stress. I have had medical doctors literally send me patients that have stress so high, even medication isn't dealing with it, because our church had a medical clinic for many years. One of the things I did with these people is I would say, let's you and I meet for once a week, even if it's just a half an hour, as long as it takes, but you only have one thing to do. When that stress arises in your life or those doubts or those questions, you need to stop and immediately go to prayer, go to the Word, and claim the truth of the Word and ask Jesus for help. And then you and I will talk about it. And honestly, guys, in some situations, it took six months, nine months, a year for people to get out of that or to really deal with that. For others, it was a shorter period of time. And for some, they're still struggling because they don't consistently follow through. It's there but we can overcome it with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I were asked that question, i talk to them about two circles. One is called the circle of concern. The other is called the circle of influence. Circle of concern issues are those issues that come into our life that we care about, that somehow emotes an emotion in us, that we respond in, in, a, in a visceral way. But they're circle of concern issues because there's not much we can do about them. But if we expend what limited amount of emotional, physical, and spiritual energy we have in things we cannot change, when we get back to the circle of influence, which contains the things that God has called us to influence, we don't have the energy to do what we're called to do. So what do you do with circle of concern issues? Those things aren't un- unimportant. They're probably very important. But God has not assigned you the mandate to deal with it. It's somebody else's hill to die on, somebody else's hill to bleed on. But we're still emotionally involved. It's an important issue. It might be abortion or something else. Um, it, it, could, it, could be, it could be anything. So what do you do with these circle of concern issues? You lay them on the altar of God and release them to the Lord. And sometimes, as Tom, I think you were alluded to, it takes a long time. You might have to do it 100 times a day, yep. but you have to release it. That releases the stress. It's kind of like letting the top off of a boiling pot. The steam escapes. And focus our energies on circle of influence issues, those things that God has called us to influence for his kingdom. It may be our family. It may be our area of, of responsibilities or obligations. But we have to make a distinction between is this a circle of concern issue or is this a circle of influence issue? I like it. It makes sense. In my over 45 years in ministry, I've had people ask me, why are you still doing ministry? Why aren't you laying on a beach all the time? Uh, Well, I'd be preaching to people on the beach. That'd be part of the problem, but we'll work from there. (laughs) The point is, for me, this is a calling. It's not a job. So it's something I'm going to do till the day I die. But the Lord taught me an important lesson a long time ago. I used to be, just like you're talking about, Greg, I would pick up people's problems and I would stress over them. Mm -hmm. I'd try to figure out every solution I could. Then I would wonder why they didn't do it when I told them to. And I called them help complaining rejectors. They cried out for help. They complained, but they rejected most of what I said. Jesus finally got through to me and he said, Tom, I'm the Savior, not you. Yeah. That's exactly and he said, it. you have two things to do with people. Give them invitations and opportunities. Responsibility too, but not take your yes, responsibility exactly. for. And the moment I began doing that, not only did I get free in a significant way, 
But I saw the Lord's freedom begin to come into those people's life because they took on what they needed to deal with and weren't expecting me just to figure it out and give them an answer. I hope it's helpful for the audience to understand, as you pointed out, Tom. I mean, anxiety and stress is a natural function of life. The things that come at us that we hadn't planned, that we aren't prepared for, and it's going to create a certain degree of trust or a certain degree of stress, and it'll create some anxiety. But the fact of the matter is we know who to go to to help us relieve that stress and that anxiety. He takes it upon his shoulders for us. And so we have to go ahead and avail ourselves of that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Reed. Have you had more stress in your life regarding finances or health? You know, for me, it's actually been neither. My, oh, nice. my stress... Nice. <laughs> neither. I don't stress over money or health at all. Okay. My stress has been watching my grandchildren grow into a world that's um, getting darker by the moment. Yeah. And, and my obligation to help them navigate an ever-darkening world and how they will respond to it, given the tools that they're going to need to make wise decisions against the onslaught of philosophies and ideologies that pulled them away from the cross, and to be a model for them in that process. That's what causes me stress. Okay. Thank you. Greatest stress in my life, this is going to sound a little strange at first, but I'm very conscious of the scripture that says those who proclaim the word or teach the word will be held more accountable. And so I have struggled to make sure that my preaching and teaching yeah. is something I'm not going to be embarrassed by, yeah. not going to mislead people, and not going to forfeit the name of Jesus. And that's what I've tried to do all these years. And I would say it's still a big driving factor in my life. I want to make sure when I get that opportunity, I don't miss that opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. This question was asked before, and I want to ask it again. And I'm going to start by looking your direction, Greg Borgon, okay? Because yeah. I have a feeling you were not part of the last time this question was asked. Jesus said he's waiting to return because he wants no one to perish. But there are babies and new generations being born every day and every year. What's up? Phrase that again. Jesus said he's waiting to return because he wants no one to perish. Mm -hmm. But there are babies and new generations being born every day and every year. Mm -hmm. They just keep coming. Mm -hmm. I think it's... It's not a a blanket statement that he says, I'm going to make sure nobody rejects the gospel. I'm going to make sure that no one uh, is is not saved. He's saying that that is what the overall principle, that's what the mandate is. And some are going to reject because of the gift of free will that we have. We can reject it. Now, when it comes to babies, um, take into consideration the age of accountability if you're a baby and you haven't got the ability now to um, make wise decisions because you're a baby, don't think for a minute that God isn't going to take you into his arms into heaven. It's when you reach the age of accountability. It may be different age for, for different people. It could be anywhere from 11 to maybe 18 years of age in some cases. So the fact of the matter is is that God doesn't want anyone to perish. And he's going to come at the right time it doesn't mean that everyone will be saved at that point or that, um, that it, it's now time because one thing he doesn't say, does say in Scripture, when the gospel has been heard. And now when we think about technology and the way that the gospel is spread today, uh, we're probably living in an age when just about everyone 
has had an opportunity to hear the gospel, mm-hmm. except in very remote instances. So we're coming close to that edge. That's when he says he's going to come. Mm-hmm. The other thing, too, is the Bible talks about two types of time, chronos and kairos. Chronos is linear time. Mm-hmm. That's what we live in. Start here, go to here, then we die. And from our perspective, this statement is hard to comprehend. But from the chronos perspective of the Lord breaking in, Time is no factor for Jesus at all. Mm-hmm. He stands outside of time, and so he can universally say he has no desire to return until all have heard the message and come to faith. But that doesn't mean he's going to delay anything. And as Greg said, he has his own timetable, and when the time is right, suddenly he will be there, and he will come again, and every eye shall see him. So I think the the advantage there is this. No one will be with an excuse when they stand before the Lord and say, we never had a chance. You know, his grace is unmerited, but it's not unlimited. Right. There'll be a day when the door is closed. Yep. And so consequently, everyone will have an opportunity, but many will reject him. I mean, all you have to do is read in Matthew chapter 24, the book of Revelation or in Daniel, and you understand where it's leading up to. There are going to be people, there are going to be nations for that matter, that are going to reject him right up to the very time when he comes again. Mm -hmm. And even when he comes, they're going to reject him. You guys both offered smarter-than-average answers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I mean, I'm not grading on a scale or anything, but I'm just saying those those are pretty good answers. (laughs) So I I like that. I think it's time to take a break. we got lots more Guide Talk, so let me know what questions you have. There's some great questions coming in, and I can't wait to get to them. But we do take a 90-second break right now. 877-933-2488. Eight four. That's the number to text your question. Get them over. We got another hour and fifteen minutes of guy talk. It's the whole show today, so we'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. We're back with Guy Talk, guys who talk. Pastor Tom Parrish, Dr. Greg Borgond are my guests, and they are doing a fantastic job. If you just joined us, this is uh, one of my favorite times in the week where questions come in, and we do our very best to answer them. Here's an interesting question, gentlemen. I'm going to look at you first, Tom Parrish, if you don't mind. I want to believe without question that I'm saved, thanks to Jesus' actions. Is it spitting in his face to question if I'm truly saved? I often fear I'm not saved because of a lack of repentance. I think everybody faces that in one form or another. And again, this is where I have come to believe that the body of Christ needs to be there for one another. Because again, the devil wants to isolate you. If you're the the person who's written this question, he loves to isolate you. The fact that you're even asking the question impresses me because it's too easy to, oh, I'm not good enough. I haven't done enough. I haven't repented enough. Well, you never will. And we may as well come to grips with that. What I bank everything on is what the Word of God says and what Jesus says, that what he has done is enough, and it's his shed blood that covers me, period. 
And the only thing that I am going to shout out when I stand before the Lord one day is the name of Jesus. Not anything I've done, not how much I've repented, not how good I tried to be. It's his blood that makes all the difference. And so for the the, uh, questioner, keep going back and looking to Jesus. Keep crying out his name and let his reassurance come into your life. The fact that doubt enters uh, on a regular basis is not the sin. What is a sin is refusing to believe the truth. So consequently, when doubt enters, because it says in Scripture, now we see darkly. And when we're in his presence, we'll see clearly. Well, when you see darkly, there's some degree of doubt. When you're in the midst of a storm, there's some degree of doubt. But the fact of the matter is, is that God wants us to believe him what he says. And if we're saved, we're saved. So we have to remind ourselves of that. It's not blind faith. It's informed faith, informed by the word of God. So we have to remind ourselves repeatedly because God just wants us to trust him and to take his word at, at its at, as truth. Here's hmm. a little tip. Most of us have computers. Most of us have printers. Uh, I love the parchment-type paper. You can go now get it in half by 11. It looks like it's ancient. And I will take, if I'm having an issue like that, like here's one of my favorite verses, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I print that, and it will hang on my wall for weeks or months well, I'm struggling with something like this, and I every day I get up and I look at it, and I keep letting the Word convince me over and over, this is true. And once it gets deep into my heart, I still leave it up. I mean, my room looks like a mess. But what it does is it gives me that reassurance of God's Word, which I, unless you memorize the Word, there is only a tendency to get it when you open the Bible. I have it up on the wall, too. Yeah. You know, in, in the New Testament, the Greek word for believe is pasteo, which means to trust in, rely on, and cling to. Now, think about that for a minute. If you take it as a given fact, what are you having to trust in? What are you having to rely on? The very fact that we need to trust in, rely on, and cling to means there's going to be moments of lack of clarity. There's going to be moments where we doubt, but that's when we Take a volition, we make a volitional decision that we're going to trust in, rely on, and cling to the truth, even though we don't know all of the specifics related to it. That's what it means to trust God. It's an informed step of faith. Mm-hmm. So often, as a pastor, I've had people say, If I only had more faith, that misses the point. It's not the quantity of faith, and that's why Jesus talked about the mustard seed. It's where you put that faith. Mm-hmm. And if you put that faith in the Word of God and in Jesus Christ and what he said there, you have what you need. But I'm an old photographer from way back, and one of the biggest problems I have in photography is keeping my lenses clean. Well, that's life. Our lenses are always getting—spiritual lenses are always getting dirty. We always see Jesus only partly. We have to keep cleaning that lens with the truth mm-hmm. so that we keep seeing him. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that God has called us into the world and minister to the world for the sake of the world, but not be of the world. But every time you tr- you make that trip into the world for the cause of Christ, the world rubs off on you. Of course. There's a reason why the Word of God is called water, because it washes you. We have to go back to it repeatedly. It's kind of like what you're talking about with computers and so forth. I mean, there's certain pro- procedures that you have to follow explicitly to get the desired result. So oftentimes you have to go back to the manual to remind yourself of what the steps you need to take and then to trust in those steps even though you don't fully understand them. That's what it means. Nicely done, gentlemen. 
877-933-2484 to send your questions over. All right. Next question up is in light of the Ukrainian dam being blown up and causing unimaginable damage. How is God glorified when evil men are allowed to cause such harm for years, even decades? I know God is in control, but it sure seems like sometimes God just shrugs his shoulders. I think that's an easy way to interpret it, and I have lots of people say that to me all the time. What's interesting, I just preached on this topic last Sunday, and the point of the the message was simply this. Look, we have to get it into our heads as Christians that we are going to be committed to Jesus, committed to the gospel, and committed to being his disciples, and committed to one another, whether or not Jesus bails us out of a situation or not in this life, whether or not, you know, we win the so-called battle. Because lots of people died in World War II. Lots of people have died in Uganda. Lots of people have died in Ukraine. Many of them are Christians. The goal is that we still have confidence in him, no matter what happens to the very end. Now, the Bible also says that Jesus will have the final word in all things. That doesn't mean when he's in control, that doesn't mean that he's manipulating everything that happens. But he knows what to do exactly with it, and ultimately he will have the final say. Our goal is to keep clinging to him. And and I see that and people are dying. I've been with a lot of dying people, and the ones that have the most comfort are the ones who finally come to realization. Whether I live or die doesn't matter. What matters is I'm right with Jesus. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that there's a price to the gift of free will. When you're given a choice to do something right or do something wrong, there are consequences to those choices. What good would it be to give us free will if every every uh, opportunity in its exercise, Jesus interjects himself or God interjects himself to correct it. The fact of the matter is we suffer the consequences of other people's sin. And it's just like it talked about in Scripture, uh, many of the occurrences about children, innocent children dying because of a, uh, a collapsing wall or, 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 or bear attack or whatever it is, as you read Scripture. It was that God's will. It's the consequence of living in a fallen world. But there's coming a point when judgment on the world is going to take place. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is God's gift of free will, there's a price to its exercise. We live under the power if we don't receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, under the ruler of the air, the ruler of this world. The enemy is at foot here. He's causing a lot of this this carnage and this destruction and the terrible thing that's going on in the Ukraine right now has been going on for some time. And so it's legitimate to ask the question, where's God in all of this? Yes. And then when you actually have conversations with people as missionaries that have gone to Ukraine, talk to people about their faith in the midst of all of that chaos, that God is still there in the midst of that chaos. All right. We've just got a couple of minutes before this hour ends. And I want to go back to this question where a Proverbs 31 woman is living with a narcissist. And the follow-up question that was asked is, what is the difference being responsible to and for someone, as in the Proverbs 31 woman being married to a narcissist? Having a responsibility to someone is doing what's in their best interest, even if they don't appreciate it. It's not holding a grudge. It's, It's not seeking revenge. I mean, Uh, I was told one time by a friend of mine that forgiveness is choosing not to seek revenge. And so the idea is is that we always operate in the best interest of the whether they deserve it or not. 
So that's a responsibility to them. When given the opportunity and when it's safe to do so, to hold people accountable for some of the um, sin in their own life from, let's say, from, the, from a narcissist husband, uh, it's going to take a great deal of counseling, I think, to break them out of that mold. But the fact of the matter is we have a responsibility to them, but we don't need to go ahead and accommodate the lifestyle that they've chosen. Responsibility to them is keeping the home, just like the, the uh, Proverbs 31 uh, uh, woman did. Uh, she, she made a living. She made clothes for others. So she was doing what was in the best interest of others, regardless of the circumstances that she found herself. So that's a responsibility to them. You can't take responsibility for them and try to heal them without God ministering to them at the depth of their soul. That's well said, and that's exactly right. I can't change a narcissist. Only Jesus can. The wife can't change the narcissist. What she can do, though, is represent Jesus to the best of her ability in that home. And I know that's hard. And the reason I say that is because I have dealt with so much of this in ministry. And there have been times I've even counseled women to separate for a while, depending on the situation, especially if there's a lot of abuse. But that's where the church also needs to be willing to step in and help where we can. And too often, we want to pray for one another, which I think is great. But that prayer also means that we need to be there for those people as best we can. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Hour two of Guy Talk is just ahead. Keep your wonderful questions coming, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Dr. Greg Borgon and Pastor Tom Parrish will return for another solid hour of Guy Talk. And uh, Jeff Verdorn, I think, is listening with his feet in the sand. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.